I love serving. I love not only capturing faces, but meeting new faces. My name is Courtney Stacy, and I serve as the lead photographer for Redemption. I grew up in a very broken home. I um, grew up around a lot of addiction, a lot of pain. My dad was in and out of my life uh, growing up, and my mom, um, she was an alcoholic up until she uh, passed away. Um, the year that I got saved, actually, was the same year that she died. Uh, she died from suicide. And then in that year, I guess, whenever, you know, she did what she did, I decided that I need to give my life to God. Ever since then, I just have been living my life trying to, to be better than I was yesterday, but to be better than what I was brought up in not just for myself, but for my children. I want to be able to, you know, tell them how Jesus saved me and how um, I was able to be the first generation to break down the curses that have bounded my family for so long. Jesus not only saved my life, but he redirected the course for my family. Well, good morning, Redemption Church. Hey, I am so excited to see you. If you're a guest, welcome. We love you. So glad that you're here. Let me go ahead and introduce myself. My name is Byron, and I am not the lead pastor of Redemption Church. My name is Byron, and I am not the husband to an incredible wife named Ashley Jane Ellis. My name is Byron, and I am not the father to two beautiful little girls named Esther Sun and Ruth Moon. My name is Byron, and I am not just a connoisseur of all things Tex-Mex and tacos. My name is Byron, and I am not a brother. I am not a family member. I am not the grandson of Chuck and Meredith Ellis. And if you're a member here, or you've been coming a while, you're looking at me kind of confused. You're like, wait, did he just resign? Oh my gosh, no. The reality is, is while I am those things, I am actually more than those things. That I am not just what I do, I am who God says that I am. And that's the theme that we're going to be looking at as we study over the next nine weeks the, the book of Colossians. Who do you think that you are? Where do you find your identity? And how does your identity determine your destiny? That's what we're going to be looking at. If you're taking notes, write this down. Very important. And it's going to guide and shape our study over the next nine weeks. And here's what it is. The word is this, words may describe us, but they do not define us, okay? All of those things that I just mentioned, okay, those are things that describe me, but they are not the totality of who I am. They are not my identity. Words may be able to describe us, but they do not define us. Let me ask you this question. Who do you think that you are? Who do you say that you are? I mean, it's a question that gets asked all the time. I mean, let's just say you were to meet somebody new, maybe at work, maybe in the lobby, maybe at a small group or someone in your everyday life, and you were to meet someone new, and they were to say, hi, I'm so-and-so, tell me about yourself. What would you say about yourself? Most likely, what we do is we introduce ourselves by things that describe us. I am a pastor. I am a husband. I am a father. I am a grandchild. I am these things. We describe ourselves based upon on what we do. And for so many people, their identity comes from what they do, and it doesn't come from who they are or what God says about them. We live in what, the, what a philosopher says, the entrepreneurial of the self. 
that in the society and culture we live in, we are constantly recreating, redefining, reinventing, and recreating who we are so that way we can find our place in this world. And for many people, that's exactly where we go to find our sense of worth, our sense of dignity, our sense of value, and our identity based upon what we do. So where do you find your identity from? Well, sociologists tell us that there's actually five places where people find their identity. Some people, they find their identity in their performance. I am what I do. It's their successes. It's their achievements. It's their accolades, it's their jobs or their college, their GPA, all of these things, they, they derive their value and worth out of, their, out of their performance. So just think about it when it comes to your job. If you meet somebody and they work in a healthcare profession, maybe a nurse, maybe a teacher, okay, there's a lot of identity that goes along with that, is there not? Or maybe you meet somebody who works at a refinery, they work at Exxon or at a plant. There's an identity that is attached to the job that they have. Many people, they find their identity out of their performance. Maybe it's not your vocation, maybe it's your education. What college did you go to? There's an identity. So did you go to UT, hook them horns? Okay, anybody else? Okay. What about A&M? Any Aggie fans, like Gigam Aggies? Okay, what about Lamar? Peckham cards, right? Right. Unless you went to Lamar Orange, and then there's an identity in that too. Okay, so for me, I went to, I went to Grand Canyon University. I graduated magna cum laude, 3.8 GPA. And we were the lopes. I have no clue what that means. Okay, lope them. I don't even know what that means, okay? Um, but, but for me, for the three years while I was in college, my identity came from my GPA. I worked hard, stayed up all night. I was like, I am gonna graduate. I am gonna get that sash and I'm gonna moonwalk across the stage. And I studied every single night till three o'clock in the morning because I believed my identity was tied up in my performance. A lot of people, they, they find their identity there. And some of you, that's not for you. Maybe you find your identity in other people. So this is your friends. This is relationships. This could be within marriage or dating relationships. It could be with your family. It could be with you know, hobbies, activities, sports teams, um, different denominations or theological persuasions that you're in. I mean, have you ever said, I'm Baptist, I'm Catholic, I'm Calvinist, I'm Arminian. What do they do? They're now defining themselves by the people and the groups and the tribes that they surround themselves with. This is so, this is so um, ingrained in our society that we derive our, you ever notice that when people just start hanging out, eventually they begin acting like that other person? Yeah, because, you know, they say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You're the sum total of the three closest people in your life because for many people, their identity comes from the people that they surround themselves with. Maybe you've seen it in um, young dating couples. You know, get a young guy and a girl and they start dating and all of a sudden they dip out on all of their friends. It's just them and, oh, they're so in love. And they think that the other person is going to define them. And what's funny is they were thinking the same thing about that other person. And they're looking to find themselves by throwing themselves into a relationship only to discover that they didn't find themselves and said they lost themselves in that relationship. This happens with husbands and wives. So why the first few years of marriage is so difficult because two becoming one is not easy. You're trying to discover and help the other person discover what their identity is as, as well. And this is for parents. Parents, how many parents in the room? As, as a parent, isn't it so hard to not allow your children to define you? That you can get so wrapped up in your identity as a, as a mom or as a, as a dad, and especially in our day and age with social media and Instagram and all the mommy blogs that are on there, you can scroll through social media and you look at the picture perfect life of everybody else and then you look at your kids and you're like, what is wrong with me? And I just want to encourage you, just because you have bad kids doesn't mean you're a bad parent. No, just kidding. Your kids are not bad. But you feel that way because what happens is this, is you begin to derive your identity from another person to where now your kid's behavior changes the beliefs that you have about yourself. And for many moms especially, their identity becomes so wrapped up. If they don't have their kids, if they don't have this, they don't know who they are 
are because their identity is found in a, another person. For some people, number three is this. They find their identity in passions. This is what I love to do. I love to travel. I love to, I'm a foodie. I, I love to eat. I, I love, I, I, this is my desires. This is my passions, my hobbies, my extracurricular activities. This is who I am because this is what I love. And their passions begin to shape and drive their identity, especially in our day and age, because here's one of the big lies is that identity and sexuality have been tied together for so many that they begin to define themselves by their gender or by their sexuality. And because of that, there's a lot of confusion in our culture. And we're gonna dive into this in a later topic and a later subject in the sermon. But ever since the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, identity and sexuality have been tied together. And you would think that people would be more free, more happy, and more discovering of themselves. But yet, what you see since the, the, the entanglement of identity with sexuality Sexuality is that is that rape and molestation, that um, pornography, uh, that different sexual crimes have continued to increase. There's an uh, increase of anxiety, depression, frustration, and it's all tied to this because people don't know who they are. I was reading one research that reported that since 1960s and 70s with the sexual revolution, one in four women will be sexually assaulted. And in the last 10 years, one in five young adults contemplated suicide. And it's simply because there is a coupling of our identity. People are not, don't know who they are and they're lost in that. It's because they're pursuing themselves through their passions and then maybe that's not you. Maybe number four is this, is you look for identity in your possessions. You say, who I am is what I own. This is what sociologists call conspicuous consumption. It's where you don't buy things for the functionality of the product, but because of the identity that it produces. Okay, so look, right? A Rolex watch costs $10,000, but it tells the same time as a $10 watch from Walmart. Because here's the deal, is that that Rolex doesn't tell the time. Instead, it tells me something about you. And so what you own is an identity statement. Even the clothes that you wear is an identity statement. So if you walk in and you're wearing a suit and tie, what does that mean? It means that you are a business person, man or woman. Maybe you work at um, like an ad agency or you're a lawyer or you're an architect. And so you, you, you demonstrate that by the clothes that you wear. Let's say you come in and you are wearing a Magellan t-shirt and you back up your Toyota Tacoma in the parking lot this morning. What does that tell me about you. It tells me that you like to work hard during the week and you like to have a really good weekend out fishing, drinking some Coors Light. That's what it tells me about, about you, okay? Because there's an identity that comes along with that. What happens if you are, you know, a pastor and you're wearing black pants and a black shirt every single day for the rest of your life? What does that tell me about you? It tells me that you probably need a new wardrobe or something, but that's me, okay? Because even my clothes present an identity saying, this is who I am. It's what I own. Or let's just consider this, a, a motorcycle. Saw a guy on a motorcycle outside this morning. There you go. If you have a motorcycle, what, is that, what does that say about you? Vroom, 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 right? You are a man. You're a manly man. And if you drive a minivan, you used to be a man. <laughs> you are a mini man. That's what you are. <laughs> Because what happens, there's an identity that comes along with that, okay? And then number five, it's the extra one, is this, is uh, personality. This is so big in our society today. People find their identity, their personality. I don't know who I am, so I'm gonna go online, I'm gonna take a 50-question quiz to tell me my identity. And so you, you, you look for your identity in different personalities, so you go on, you're like, oh, I took the Myers-Briggs. I'm an I'm a INFP. We're the, we're the rarest personality types there is. Okay, you keep telling yourself that because you're the weirdest personality type there is. <laughs> you say, but I took one. I'm an ENFP. We're the most successful personality type there is. And then other people think you're a J-E-R-K, which is the most annoying personality <laughs> that there is. 
You say, what color is your parachutes? Are you a golden doodle or are you a seal? What animal type are you? I'm an introvert. And so then you define yourself by your introvertedness and that's why you don't have any friends. And maybe some people describe themselves by their extrovertedness and that's why nobody likes you because we are looking for our identity and our personality. And so you take a quiz, you take a test and you say, I'm a four wing three on the Enneagram. And then you boil yourself down to nothing more than just a number because you are finding your identity through your personality. And this is how the Western world thinks. We live in an achievement society. This is the danger of the entrepreneurial of the self. Everyone is looking for an identity. They're trying to discover their place in this world. They're trying to figure out what on earth am I here for? Who am I and how am I supposed to live? And so they're looking for identity in people, in places, in possessions, in passions, in personality, and they're frustrated, they're anxious, exhausted, they're more, more stressed out, freaked out than ever before because it's exhausting trying to create and innovate and recreate and deconstruct who you were every five years to be a new person. Anybody else feeling the stress and the anxiety around these things? Okay, there has to be a better way. Well, good news for you is there is a, a better way. So if I were to ask you, who do you say that you, am, you are? It's like Popeye the sailor man. I am what I say I am. Who do you say that you are? Many people don't know. So let me ask you a, a different question. Who does God say that you are? What does God think about you? How does God see you? What does God say about you? Because here's the deal. Because God designed you, only God is able to define you. God created you for a purpose and on a purpose, and he knows the plans and purposes for your life. Because God designed you, you were made in the image and the likeness of God. You carry dignity and value and worth because God designed you in your mother's womb. He created you. He knows every single head or hair that is on the top of your head. God knows you intimately and intrinsically. So God knows your true identity because God designed you. It is only God who is able to define you. Let me give you an illustration that might better help you understand that. In my pocket, what is this? It's an iPhone. Now, let's say 20 years ago, someone were to hand you this iPhone, and you look at it, and you're like, well, what is that? Well, you wouldn't really know what it is. You would say, is it a paperweight? Um, is it a door jam? Is it a, is it a weapon? <laughs> you say, well, no, it, it's, it's a phone. And if Steve Jobs or Apple or if... The owner's manual didn't tell you how to use it, didn't tell you how to operate it, plug it in, charge it up, then you wouldn't know what it was for. You look at it, you say, well, of course, that's a phone, but is it a phone? No, actually, it's, it's more than a phone. It's, it's the internet. It's all of the information and data collected through all of mankind in the palm of your hand. It's a calculator. It's an alarm clock. It's a way for you to stay connected. This is not just a phone. It is more than a phone. And you are not just what you think you are. You are more than that as well. Because God has created you, designed you. Therefore, only God is able to define you. Listen, you are more than just a parent. You are more than just a mom. You are more than just a dad. You are more than just a friend. You are more than your education, vocation, the job that you have, the clothes that you wear, the house that you live in. You are more than your GPA. You are more than what other people say about you. You are more than what you think that you are. You are who God says that you are. That's who you are. So the question is, well, who does God say that I am? Great question. Glad that you asked. How is it that you already know what my next point in the sermon is going to be? That's amazing. Well, who does the Bible say that I am? If you have your Bibles, turn me to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and 2. I want you to look down at the page, and God uses this really important word to define you. You know what that word is? It's the word saints. 
Okay, go ahead and circle that, underline it, highlight it. It's the title for this sermon series. And over the next nine weeks, we're going to be unpacking that word and looking at how it affects our lives. It's this word saint. Do you know what that word saint means? It means holy. It means righteous. It means sacred. It means set apart for God's purposes. When God sees you, here's the word that he speaks over you. He says, you are a saint. You are holy. You are righteous. You are set apart and called according to my purposes. You are a saint. How does that feel? Go ahead, put that on your business card. Saint. Go ahead and put it in your Instagram bio. Saint. Go ahead, just try it on for a little bit. How does that feel? Ooh, I'm a, I'm a saint. Now, if you go and introduce yourself to somebody and they're like, hey, who are you? You're like, my name is St. Byron. You might think you're a little weird, but you can invite them to redemption and then they'll understand what this word means, that, that you're a saint. And here's why this is so incredibly important for us to understand as we begin this series. It's important for us to recognize this because we, who we are determines what we do. Our identity begins to determine our activity and our destiny. When you know who you are, then you're going to know how it is that you're supposed to live. So for me, whenever it comes time for me to parent, here's what I think. I am not a parent. I am a saint. How does a saint parent? I am not just a husband. I am a saint. So how does a saint love his wife like Jesus loves the church? So you'd think about this. I am a wife, not me, but maybe you. You are a wife, but you are more than that. You are a saint. So how does a wife love her husband? How does a saint work their job, spend their money? Where does a saint live? What kind of car does a saint drive? How does a saint view sexuality and gender? How does a saint view their education? How does a saint view their vocations? And all these things have implications, but those are things that describe us. The saint is what defines us. And when you know who you are, then you'll know how to live. This is what theologians call your first big word of the day. You ready? Indicative imperative. That it starts with the indicative. This is who you are. And then Colossians moves into the imperative. This is how we live because of who Christ has made us to be. It starts with our identity, and then it moves to our activity. Because God designed us, God is the only one that is able to define us. So with that being said, go ahead, turn with me to Colossians chapter one. The sermon title today is this, discovering your true identity. Who's ready to discover their true identity? Who wants to learn what God says about you? Who wants to see yourself the way that God sees you? Who wants to live a life out of the identity that you have been given now because of Christ Jesus? So here we go, Colossians chapter one, starting in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the, what's the word? Thank you. There's our word, the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, just checking to see if you're paying attention. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We're going to stop right there, two verses, that's all I have for you today. You're welcome, service is over, you are dismissed. No, I'm just kidding. That was just my first introduction. Now it's time for my second introduction. Because in order for us to understand the text, we gotta understand the context. We need to understand the world that, that this was written to. So the first question is, who is the author of this book? Well, it's a man named Paul. In fact, it's not a book. It's a, it's a letter that Paul wrote to one of the churches into a region named Colossae, which is why it's called the Colossians. Let me give you a brief background on who Paul is. Paul was a missionary traveling church planter who started churches along the ancient world. And he was an apostle, which means he spoke on behalf of God and he wrote books of the, the Bible. In fact, he wrote 13 books. By sheer tonnage, he is the, the one who contributes the most to the New Testament outside of Luke. And there's a debate over the 14th book, the book of Hebrews. Some people say he wrote it. I personally do not believe that he did, but whatever you want to think is okay with me. But Paul wrote 13 books, and he wrote all of this training and raising up leaders. But Paul didn't start off as a pastor. Instead, he was a persecutor of the church. When we first meet Paul is in Acts chapter seven. He oversees the death of a deacon named Stephen. While they were stoning Stephen, not stoning Stephen, but when they were throwing rocks at Stephen, I gotta be specific, okay? So as they were stoning Stephen, 
Paul oversaw it. They laid their coats at his feet, which means he was the boss. He was a bad dude. And so he is persecuting and murdering the early church. Then he meets Jesus. Everything in his life begins to change. He goes from a persecutor of the church to one who plants churches and pastors churches. He goes from a murderer to a missionary. And one of the cities that he starts the church is the city of Ephesus. You can find it in Acts chapter 19. He rolls into Ephesus. He stays there for three years, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and raising up new leaders. One of the leaders we're going to meet next week, his name is Epaphras. And from that, he goes to the town of Colossae, and he starts this church. Here's what Colossae is like. Ephesus, think of it like a big city, like Houston. Colossae is like Beaumont. It's the suburbs or it's the bedroom community. It's a, it's a town just a little bit away. But if somebody were to ask you where you're from, they'd probably say Ephesus, just like somebody, if you were like, hey, where are you from? You're like, ah, Houston. No, we're not. But you say that you are because it's the best reference that we have. And so when it comes to the geography of the text, the best reference we have is that Colossae is a suburb of, 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 uh, of Ephesus. And this church is planted, it's growing, it's thriving. And then after a few years, Paul gets arrested, thrown in prison. As he's sitting in prison, he learns that the church at Colossae, all of a sudden there's an upheaval. There's a problem. There's some theological controversy. There's some pain and struggles and, and hardships like every new young church goes through because even churches have to discover their identity as well. And so this church is wrestling through these theological implications. Paul hears about it. He writes this letter to the church to be able to help them navigate their way through the complexities of the culture and the environment that they live in. And right now, some of you are probably wondering, Pastor Byron, what does that have to, to do anything with me today, 2,000 years later in downtown Beaumont, Texas? Well, it has everything to do with us. Have you ever heard the phrase that history repeats itself? It's true. Why? Because God's word doesn't just tell us what happened. It tells us what always happens. Okay, this isn't just history. This is our story and how human nature continues to work. So let me explain to you this little controversy that, that's going on in the book of Colossians, which inspires this, this letter. Here, here's what's happening. Okay, the church is stuck between two different ideologies that are competing for their identity. On the left, you have what is known as the Judaizers, or on one side, rather the right, you have the Judea. On the left, you have the, your left, my right, you have the, you have the Gnostics. Now here's what the Judaizers believe. They were very strict, they were very devoted, very pious, they were very religious. And they would say things like, Jesus is not enough, you have to add works to the gospel in order for you to be saved. They came up with a lot of rules. They're like, well, you know, you know, like all that stuff in the Bible is good, but God did not do enough. We need to go ahead and add some extra rules to the Bible. And then they begin to judge Jesus. And they're like, well, you know, Jesus, he's not as holy as we are. He's kind of got long hair. looks like a hippie, got a beard. I mean, we need to do something about that Jesus. And so they start adding to the gospel and they begin to dilute the gospel's work and effect in people's lives. So it's the Judaizers. And they saw everybody as filthy, wicked, dirty sinners. And then on the other side, you have the Gnostics. These are the, not the religious, these are the rebellious. Okay, these are the, the more liberal of the group. And what they would say is, there is no sin. You're not a sinner. You're a snowflake. You are perfect just the way that you are. The only sin is to say that there's sin. Do not deny yourself. Give in to your passions. And so you have these two sides. And on one side, you have the conservatives. On the other side, you have the liberals. On one side, you have the fundamentalists. On the other side, you have the progressives. And in the middle, you have the church. Does this sound familiar? Anybody else feel this struggle? Especially for new believers coming into the church, getting saved from a life and entering into the church. And you're wondering, well, now that I love Jesus, how am I supposed to live? Because I have one group on the other side and they look very serious and holy and devout and they're telling me that I'm not good enough. And then on the other side, you have a whole group of people that are telling me that I'm perfect the way that I am. So how do I live when I'm right here in the middle? That's what the book of Colossians is about. And here's what... Colossians is about, here's what Paul wants you to know is this, is that we find our identity from God's word or we'll define our identity by the world that we live in. You can either get your identity from God's word or you're gonna get your identity from the world, but you can't have both. There is no dual, dual citizenship in, in this. It's either kingdom or culture. You either get your identity from the scripture or you get it from the society that we live in. 
You, you can't live in both worlds. Eventually, you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to make a decision. What do I believe? How am I going to live? Who does God say that I am? And that's the way that I decide that I'm going to live my life. This is where my identity comes from. And so Paul sits down, he writes this letter to encourage his church. And I'm excited because we're going to preach this book because I believe that there's people here who need a lot of encouragement when it comes to figuring out who you are and how you're supposed to live. Amen? I would love to see a church that is everyday saints, that whenever you go to Target or to, to Walmart or when you go to work or when you're driving your car, when you come home in your family or you're in your neighborhood, I just envision a church where everywhere you go, there's everyday saints everywhere people look and they can't get away from the goodness and the grace of God that is being on display in the life of his church. That's the church that I want to see, and I believe that's the church that Colossians is going to help us create. I mean, I'm so fired up and excited to study the book of Colossians. It's amazing. My second introduction is over. Let's read it again. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. You ready? Don't matter. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I got the microphone. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Four questions to help you discover your true identity. The first question I must ask you is this. Who do you learn from? See, no one in this world is born with knowledge, wisdom, and information. Right? Children, they don't come into this world with a download of everything that they know that they're supposed to do. No, what happens? Parents have to teach their kids. This is why as parents, it's so incredibly important for you to take ownership of the family discipleship within your home because you basically only get five years to be able to shape the worldview of your children before you send them off to school. And then now their worldviews is being shaped by the schools, the education, their peers, and the people that are over them, whether coaches, teachers, extracurricular activities, or other people within the community, because all these different things, they begin to vie for the attention and shape the way that children see themselves in this world. I'll give you an example. I remember when I was in 10th grade, I was going to our, my math class and my math teacher, they called me up to be able to do a problem up on the board. And I tried and tried and I could not get this problem right. And then my teacher looked at me in front of everybody and she called me stupid. She said, you're, you're dumb, you're stupid, go sit down. So what happened, that began to shape my identity because I had a person who was in an authority position, spoke a negative word over my life, and it began to shape how I saw myself. So what did I begin to repeat to myself after that? I'm stupid, I'm dumb, and I will never be good at math. So then I flunked out of, uh, out, of, out of high school. I couldn't pass the math class, but luckily at the time they were just passing everybody. So I got out of high school. I went to college. I flunked out of college twice. You know why? Because I couldn't pass math. I remember one time when I was waiting tables, I saw my math teacher. I walked up to him and I said, oh, hey, you failed me. He said, no, I didn't fail you. You failed yourself. Because I had an identity, I am bad at math, I am dumb, I am stupid. And so I flunked out of college twice. I said I would never go back, but at the age of 30, with the encouragement of the church and my wife, I went back to college. First class that I took was, uh, was a math class. You know what? I made a 90 on that thing. Because I got tired of allowing someone's words to rule over my life. But that's what happens is, is sometimes people in authority speak words over us, and that's where we begin to derive our identity. Parents, it's so important for you to speak words of life over your kids. Because as we grow up, what we're doing is we are learning who we are. So my question is for you. Who do you learn from? Who are we going to learn from in Colossians? Paul. First word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And I love that Paul says this, Paul, an apostle. You know why? Indicative, imperative. His identity is not in his apostleship. His identity is in who he is because of what Christ has done for him. Paul, an apostle. And he's going to lead us on a masterclass of identity over the next nine weeks. But I want you to understand something. Is that while Paul may be the author, Paul is not the source. Okay, because behind Paul is the Holy Spirit. Paul may have written the letter, but it was God the Spirit who inspired Paul to write this letter. Let me go ahead and give you another big fancy college word. Okay, let's, let's just repeat after me. Verbal. Verbal. Plenary. Plenary. 
Good job. First service had a little trouble with it. Verbal plenary. How about this word? Inspiration. inspiration. Now let's put it all together. Verbal plenary inspiration. Good job. Now you can go impress somebody and you say, I know a big word, verbal and plenary inspiration. There we go. But, but what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that the Bible is inspired by God and that therefore it is the word of God. That every other book is a book about God, but the Bible is the only book that is written by God. Okay, so that means for us as believers, here's, here's what we, we believe, that all scripture is true and it's trustworthy. It tells us who God is, what God does, tells us who we are because of who he is, and it tells us how we're supposed to live our lives. And as believers, we live under the authority of God's word in our lives. And so as Christians, here's how we read the Bible. We read the Bible like this. Okay, God's word is true. It's trustworthy. Here's what God says. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. I'm going to live my life according to the word and the will and the ways uh, of God. And so we live under authority. But here's the problem is that many people don't like living under the authority. They want to live in over authority to God's word. So they read the Bible like this. If you've been around, you've probably seen me use this illustration, but they want to stand over the word of God. God, I'm smarter than you. God, I know better than you. And then I'm going to recreate a God in my own image so I can live my own life and do whatever it is that I want to do. Right. And so they live over the authority of the scriptures. That's wrong. And when you live your life that way, here's eventually how people begin to read the, the scriptures. They, they, they read it like this. Well, when I come to the Bible, there's certain things that, ooh, they, 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 I don't like, I don't agree with. It makes me feel a little uncomfortable. I find it outdated. And I don't really, you know, my friends, they think this thing. And I watched this YouTube video and a TikTok reel. And I went to junior college. And so I think I'm smarter than people who actually study the Bible. And so I come to the Bible and I read it. And I'm like, ooh, all that stuff about creation, Genesis, I don't like that. All the miracles in the old, and you really mean Moses talked to a burning bush? I want what he's having. Come on, somebody. You know, and then you look at like, like all the different miracles and Noah and the flood, and then you come to the Old Testament and you're looking at the book of Joshua or maybe the book of Kings, and you're like, there's so much blood and violence, and God seems like a pernicious old man who's just waiting to smite people. He's so angry, and I just can't believe in a God who would do X. I can't believe in a God who would do Y. I can't believe in a God who's going to do Z or all these other things. I don't like it, so I get rid of it. And then you're like, but Jesus is amazing, except for the teachings on forgiveness and the teachings on sexuality and the teachings over forgiving others and the teachings over loving your enemies and the healings and all the miracles that Jesus performed and that whole death, burial, resurrection thing. That never happens. And so you get rid of that and you keep reading through the Bible and reinterpreting the Bible and you come to a man named Paul. Oh, Paul's got some big problems. You ever read Paul? He's a misogynist. He's a homophobe. Paul's a, a racist. Oh, man, look at all the things that Paul says. Husbands, love your wives. We live in the 21st century. Wives, submit to your husbands. Oh, can't believe he would say that. Do not exasperate your children. Children, respect and honor your parents. Look at all the different things. Paul, I got to get rid of Paul. I can't do that. The book of Colossians doesn't belong in the Bible. And then we come to the book of Revelation. Oh, have you read that? Snakes and beasts coming from the sea. Oh, and then there's locusts and all these different things. And you get to the place to where eventually you have a God of your own making and a worldview that looks like the society that you live in. Listen, God is not going to edit the word to match your preferences. And this is why it's so important for us who call redemption home to know the word. Because if you don't know what you believe, then you will believe anything. I am amazed at the biblical illiteracy that is in our nation where the average person has three Bibles in their home. But they don't read any of it. You know, we have more Bibles, more technology, more resources, more things that are available to us today than any other time in the history of the world. And yet so few people know what it is that they believe. And that's why we have a church that believes anything. That's why people are being swept away by every wind and doctrine. Not that they discover in institutions, but that they come across on TikTok or on YouTube and they're having their formation shaped 
shaped by the world rather than being informed by God's word. Who are you learning from? Who are you listening to? Because I guarantee you, whatever book you've read, whatever class you took, whatever YouTube video you watched or whatever influencer you followed in 2,000 years, nobody's going to care about them. In 2,000 years, every wind and wave of doctrine will be swept away. Every philosophy and ideology will come and go. Kings and queens and empires and civilizations have risen and fallen, but the word of the Lord is forever. The grass, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word is forever. Say, get rid of Paul. It's 2,000 years later. We're still talking about him. The question is, who do you learn from? Because if you don't know what you believe, then you won't know how to live. And then eventually you might end up just believing anything that somebody else says. Uh, The second question is this. Who do you do life with? Look at who he says he's writing to. To the saints and to the faithful brothers in Christ where? Colossae. Hey, that's a, that's a place. It's not a person. He's not writing to an individual. He's writing to a gathering, a collection of different people who are doing life together. This is so incredibly important because, because people today, they just think, well, I have my own personal relationship with Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. I don't need anybody else, but that's just not true. That God did not create us to live a life of isolation. God did not create us to live a life of loneliness. No man is an island. You were designed for community, created for community. You were made for community. That's the way that God created us to be. And so he's writing to a church. Let me just tell you this. If you're taking notes, write this down. There is no such thing as DIY Christianity. Have you ever heard the saying, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian? That's true, but you don't need a parachute to jump out of an airplane, but it sure does make it a lot easier, doesn't it? (laughs) Say, well, I don't go to church because I am the church. No, you're not. Because you can be a Christian by yourself, but you need other people in order to be a church. We live in an individualistic society where we think it's just me and my life doesn't impact or affect other people. But the truth is it does. There is no such thing as DIY Christianity. You can DIY a coffee table, you could DIY wallpaper, you could DIY your garden, but you cannot DIY the Christian life. You need other people to be able to help you and to support you. And if God's word is where we learn, then it's in the church that we learn to live out God's word for our lives. You need to be involved in a local church. This is why every single week, what do we do? We, we basically hound you to get involved, to go to next steps. Next steps is next week, 1230. We'll feed you, watch your kids. Get involved in the church. Go to a uh, winter session. Sign up. There's a big sign out in the lobby to help you sign up. Your note sheet has a QR code on the back. Sign up. Get in a lobby. Let people know your name so you could begin to discover your identity. Join a serve team. Get in a small group. You're not going to have relationship in five minutes in a lobby. You need to be surrounded by other people. So who do you do life with? The the third question is this. Who do you think that you are? Now, at the beginning, I said your, your identity is saint. And when you introduce yourself to someone... Most of the time, what you you would say is this, oh, here's who I am. You say, I work here, I do this, this is my hobbies, this is my activities, this is who I am. I'm a mother, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I do whatever it may be. And that's how you introduce yourself to others. But let me ask you this question. Who are you when you look in the mirror? I would say that there is a difference in the way that you allow others to see you and the way that you see yourself. If you were to pick a word to define your life, what word would it be? Would it be worthless, pathetic, fat, lazy, stupid, failure? How would you look and see and describe yourself? I'm divorced, I'm single, I'm miserable, I'm anxious, I'm stressed, I'm depressed. And then eventually those words begin to define the reality of our lives. And that's why it's so incredibly important for us as a church to begin to see ourselves the way that God sees us. God says you're a saint. You're a saint. 
How many of you don't really feel like a saint, though? You're like, what do you mean I'm a saint? Do you know what I did this week? Do you know what I, I said? Do you know what I've done? I mean, stayed up all night looking at porn, got in a fight with my wife, slept on the couch again, lying to my boss. That's, that's not, that doesn't seem like a saint to me. Still in my addiction. How can I be a saint? And God says, because I said you are. Listen, I want to explain something to you. Is that sin is an activity. But saint is your identity. See, see listen, I, I'm trying to thread a needle here because I don't want you to think, oh, well, sin doesn't matter. Okay, no, it does matter. But that's what you did or that's what you've done, but that's not who you are because of who Christ is. There's this word right here that says, in Christ. This is what the great reformer Martin Luther calls the great exchange. Doctrinally, another big word, it's called propitiation. That all of the perfection of Christ has now been laid upon you and all of your sin has now been laid on Christ. There's an exchange that happens when you go from your old self to becoming a new person in Christ Jesus, you get a new destiny, you get a new eternity, and you get a new identity from that. So now, now God no longer sees you as your sin, but now he sees you through the lens of his son Jesus. He doesn't see you for who you were, for where you're at. He sees you for who he created you to be. And this is why it's so important, incredibly important. Because if sin was your identity, then in eternity future, you would continue sinning. People think, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Almost as if the more they hate themselves, the more holy they are. I meet Christians all the time that just beat themselves up. I'm filthy, I'm dirty, I'm a wretch, not in Christ. In Christ, you are cleansed. In Christ, the righteousness of God has now been given to you. In Christ, that the old robes have been removed and he dresses you in garments of his righteousness. Your sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. He no longer remembers. He doesn't hold it against you. It's been nailed to that cross and he gives you a new identity and he calls you a saint in Christ Jesus. All of the blessings, all of the benefits of Jesus have now been granted unto you and I know sin might be what you did but it ain't who you are you are not what you do you are who Christ says that you are and here's why this is so amazing another big word you want one eschatological realism what that means is you begin to see yourself at the end of all things eschatology means the end of all things and then you reverse engineer your life to become who God has made you to be. This is my story. Because for me, when I first got saved, I was jacked. Like when some of y'all come in and you're like, kind of got a little shame and guilt. I'm like, you're doing pretty good compared. Because <laughs> I'm messed up. I, I used to go to church drunk. I used to go to church stoned. I would stay up all night doing drugs. Crystal meth was my drug of choice. And I would stay up all night and church would come along on Sunday morning and I just knew I had to be there. And so I might've partied all weekend long, but Sunday morning, even if I didn't slept, I still walked through those doors wearing sunglasses, my eyes are bloodshot, sleeping in the pew, but I was there. Why? Because my identity was shifting. I was becoming who God created me to be. And it took a while for me. It didn't happen instantaneously. Some of you, it does. But for me, it took a little bit. And I remember I, I went to church one day and my pastor came up to me in the lobby and I said, hey, I'm sorry. And he said, listen, I don't care what you do on Saturday night. The only thing I care about is that you're here on Sunday morning. And here's, here's what he said to me. Three words changed my life and they're on the front doors of this church. Keep showing up. Because what happened is eventually my identity that was on the inside began to manifest itself on the outside and in my life. And that's when everything began to change. 
because I started to see myself as who God created me to be, and then I began living up to God's word over my life. And everything began to change because when you know who you are, you'll know how to live. Which leads to the fourth point. As we close and I call the band forward, let me ask you this question. Who do you believe that God is? See, if you think that God is a mean God up in heaven who's just like sinner, 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 sinner. Some of you grew up in churches like that to where like the Bible was a weapon and every week the pastor loaded it up with the proverbial bullets and they're just like filthy, horrible, wicked, dirty, wrong, sinner. And you're like, ugh. And spiritually you're bleeding out all over the place because your, your view of God, A.W. Tozer says, what you think about God is the most important thing about yourself. And so if you think that God is unloving, guess what? You're gonna feel unloved. If you think that we serve a God who you have to earn your salvation, guess what? You're gonna be so exhausted trying to keep up with everything else. But that's not the word that God uses to describe himself. He says, you're a saint, so who am I? Well, look down, it says that, you're, that God's a father. That he loves you with the love and affection that a father has for kids, for their kids. And so if you're in Christ, I want you to know that God is your, is your father. So let me ask you, those who are parents, what do your kids need to do? I see a dad over there with his arm around his daughter. What does your daughter need to do to be loved by you? You just love, you just love her. There is nothing that you could do to make God love you any more or any less than he already does in Christ Jesus. I want you to understand something, that your identity is received by your Father. It is not achieved by your works. You don't have to earn your salvation. You couldn't do it anyways. And that's why Paul uses this word here, grace and peace. Grace means you don't deserve it. Unmerited favor from God on your life. Say, but God, I don't deserve to be called a saint. He says, I know. And that's why I call you one anyway. God, I don't deserve your love. He says, I know, but I'm gonna give it to you anyway. Say, God, I don't deserve to be forgiven. He says, I know, but I love this so much, I'm gonna do it anyway. And so then out of God's grace, he brings you into his family. He calls you a son and a daughter, beloved, holy, sacred, set apart for his purposes. He says, I am a father and you are my saint and I love you. Here's the grace that I give towards you. And you know, grace leads to peace. And here's the reason why. Because when you don't achieve it, it doesn't mean that you fail or you lose it. Unlike the performance society that we live in, where if you, if you mess up, you lose your identity. In Christ, when you mess up, your identity is safe. Your eternity is secure and your, your self-perception is still intact because you never lost your identity. You are who he says that you are. No matter good days, bad days, the worst day, the darkest day of your life, through your biggest faults and flaws and failures, God still speaks words of love and grace and peace over your life. Your identity is received by God which means you can get off the elliptical of the entrepreneurial of the self. You do not have to create and recreate and innovate and try to define yourself. No, you just need to become a new creation in Christ Jesus and receive your identity from the one who has done it all for you.